I begin this morning with a brief story about how confusing American tradition can be to those who do not grow up in America and to the foreigners uh, who move there. And that can often lead to a, an awkward situation. There was an American family who was hosting a young lady from China. The host family uh, had this uh, young lady uh, over the Halloween holidays. If you did not grow up in America, uh, there are many countries that don't celebrate Halloween, which is good for them, uh, but uh, they may not be fully aware of the ways we celebrate Halloween in America. And so this host family explained to this young lady from China about the concept of trick or treating and told her that she could answer the door and have the privilege of doing so when uh, a little child would ring the doorbell and hand out candy to the kids who dress up and come up to their house. Everyone assumed or thought she understood what to do, but having never heard of Halloween or trick-or-treating, the young lady from China was still confused at this very foreign concept. So the night of Halloween, the first little boy in costume came up to the door and rang the doorbell. And this young lady from China opened the door, and the little boy, with exuberance and joy, said, Trick-or-treat! And opened his bag of candy. Uh, The Chinese girl, forgetting what she was told, reached into his bag and grabbed a piece of candy and said, Thank you, little boy. Uh, This young boy was so confused, uh, he just left. Trick-or-treating on Halloween is unfortunately a distinct part of the American culture. But if you did not grow up in America, you may not know what it's all about. Which begs the question, how do we learn culture? Is it ingrained uh, because we experience it? Is it taught to us? Uh, Is there indoctrination of what is culture? What is culture? We want to define it uh, this morning uh, as we begin a new series entitled Culture Wars. Culture can basically be defined as a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of behaving that defines a group of people. In whatever context you are, in whatever group you may be a part of, it is the way of thinking, the way of living, the way of behaving that defines you as a person in your cultural subset. As it relates to ethnicity, we can say there is an American culture, there is a Chinese culture, there is a Filipino culture, and for many of us, there is a distinct Chinese-Filipino culture. If culture relates to a social economic standard, then we would refer to the culture of the elite. We would refer to the culture of the poor, or the better known middle class culture. Culture can also be in reference to age. We can have a youth culture. We can refer to the culture of the elderly. But what we want to focus in this series is on the culture that defines all of us in Jesus Christ, regardless of ethnicity, age, or wealth. And that is our Christian culture, our Christ-like culture, and how that relates to the larger worldly culture in which we live. You see, many of us don't think actively about the culture that defines our life. We often don't think that we are a part of a culture because we are not actively thinking about it. Let me ask you this. When you came into church this morning, why did you sit with your spouse? Why did the choir sit with other choir members? 
Why did you sit with your friends? Some of you, why did you not sit with your spouse? Why don't you come in and the men sit on the left and the women sit on the right, as is common in other churches? Because that is the culture of our church. We allow you to sit wherever you want, generally, and with whomever you want. And that's how I know people are dating, when they begin to sit with each other. When you drove here, when you came to church, if you drove, why did you drive on the right side of the road? I should probably quantify that since it's in the Philippines. Why did the majority of you drive on the right side of the road and not on the left side of the world where other parts of this uh, world drive on? You know, culture is something we are a part of, but we rarely consciously think about it. We just simply live it out. As someone said, it's like asking a fish what it thinks about water or a bird about the atmosphere. Culture is the atmosphere in which we live without consciously thinking about it. And there inherently lies the problem. When we don't think about our culture, when we, think, we, we don't spend much time thinking about our culture, then we allow the environment to define our set of beliefs, that which we call our worldview. Does that make sense? When we're not actively thinking about the culture in which we live, we allow the environment in which we live to define our set of beliefs and our standards. It is only when we are called to attention with an opposing cultural practice, when we are brought to attention of an opposing cultural idea that we are awakened, when there is another option in how you live your life, then we are cognizant of the fact that there is a culture which defines how we live. Let me give you an example. When Cindy, my wife, gave birth to our firstborn, Andrew, more than eight years ago, she went through a one-month postnatal confinement. In Hokkien, we call it getlai. One month of eating special, unique, supposed nutritional foods. And what was so foreign to me growing up in America was not showering for a month. Many of you have lived through that horrible time when people would call us to say they would want to visit us. Uh, I would politely refuse uh, and to come back in a month or come back later when we have settled down. But in reality, I want to tell them, "No, you can't visit my house because my wife smells. She hasn't showered in a month." For me, I was ready to show my firstborn baby boy to the world. And yet I was told I could not bring my baby out of the house for the first few weeks until the period in Hokkien we call Mwage is over. It was then that I realized that showering right after you give birth in the U.S. and taking your baby to go see the world the first month of its birth is not the norm. Because now there is an opposing cultural practice that has made me aware of another way to live life. I'm not saying a better way to live life, but just another way. It's only when we are introduced to a secondary practice that our eyes are opened to the culture of which we are a part. So in the subsequent seven weeks, not sequential... I want to help us awaken ourselves to seven areas of our culture that many of us and in our world believe as normative or normal and natural. 
and take that cultural belief and practice through a biblical framework to see if it fits within the standard that God has set in the Scripture. Now, before we talk about the specifics beginning next week, we need to set the foundation to see how we can engage the culture. When we understand the principles of engaging the culture, then we can address the specific topics ongoing. How do you share the truth of God in an ungodly surrounding that is engaging the culture? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, as we take a look at verses 16 to 34. Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Acts is after the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we get to the book of Acts. Here in Acts chapter 17, Paul will encounter the Athenian culture. And how he interacts with the Athenian culture is illustrative of a manner in which we can dialogue with contemporary culture. And we're going to draw out five principles for how we can engage the culture. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, reads this. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. You see, Paul was waiting for Timothy and Silas to meet him in Athens from Berea. And so while waiting for his two colleagues, Paul decides to be a tourist in this most beautiful of ancient cities. He decides to explore this ancient cities with all of its beautiful temples and gods. The very well-known Parthenon would have been there. But instead of being in wonderment at some of these ancient wonders of the world, Look at his reaction in verse 16. The Bible tells us he is disturbed. He is troubled in his heart. Why? Because of all the idols that surrounded and were a part of the culture of that city. You see, the culture of Athens did not line up with his belief in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it provoked in his heart, in the Greek, an irritation... It bothered him. It bothered him that there were too many idols in the city. To put it into your cultural context, how many of you had the same reaction when you went to Thailand or to Cambodia or to Taiwan? How many of you reacted when you saw all of those Buddhist temples and said, you know, I am bothered in my soul? I bet most of us were in awe at the architecture and took pictures with all the Buddhas. How many of you, if you were to go to India, would be bothered when you see all the Hindu shrines? Does a culture of idolatry bother you? Does it provoke you to action? And here in verse 16 lies our first principle for engaging the culture. Number one, if you're taking notes. Number one, our response to ungodly culture. What is our response? It is to be disturbed. Our response to ungodly culture? Disturbance. To be disturbed. We should be irritated. We should be disturbed by the sin and the sins of this world. The idols of our culture like individualism, narcissism, it's all about me. Does that bother us? Promiscuity, sex outside the bonds of marriage, does that bother us? 
a lack of respect from a younger generation to an older generation, does that trouble us? It should. I was in the U.S. a few weeks ago when I was uh, resting in the hotel and uh, flipping through the channels on TV and uh, came across MTV. We don't have MTV here uh, in my home, and so uh, wanted to see what was uh, in present-day culture amongst the young people. And it was the evening of the MTV Music Awards. This is a show that is often marketed to the youth, and I know a lot of children watch the MTV Music Awards. Now, I'm not a prude, and I feel myself to be a young pastor, and uh, with it in terms of uh, cultural understanding. But I was shocked with what transpired on the MTV Music Awards. I had to turn it off after 10 minutes, lest I sinned more. It was lewd. It, it was inappropriate for the Christian mind. But I wonder how many of us in our culture have been so saturated by all of this that it, it, we are so desensitized that we would continue watching it. It would not bother us. Do you laugh when someone is acting out or living out a homosexual lifestyle? On a comedy show? I would not want to take a survey of the people here this morning because we'd all raise our hands, including myself. We laugh at a lifestyle, and we'll talk more about this in subsequent weeks, that God is very displeased with. Not the people. He loves them. But the way the lifestyle is portrayed. Do we shrug it off as normal when someone has a mistress? When someone is living in an adulterous relationship, do we simply say, well, that's our culture? It happens to a lot of people. What is our response to an ungodly culture our response should be that it disturbs us, it annoys us, it provokes us to action like it did of Paul. What did he do? Look at verse 17 and 18. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others says, he seems to be, to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. To address the issue, he began to speak to a wide variety of people. He spoke to several groups of people in the city from the Jews to the God-fearing Gentiles to the Epicureans to the Stoic philosophers. And basically, anyone who would want to talk to him. That's what verse 17 says. Those who happen to be there in the general public, he engaged them. Paul engages the culture. He does not back away. Paul, you may say, had the gift of gab. He, he, he could carry a conversation with anyone. That's why he could do it. But more than that, Paul was willing to talk to them, to engage them. That's something you and I can do. From places of worship to the marketplace, Paul engaged the culture that so bothered him and troubled his soul. My friends, are you engaging the culture in which you live? You know, a lot of people think that when they become Christians, 
that somehow they no longer have a standing in the culture of which they are a part. Somehow, when they become Christians, when we become Christians, we are no longer Chinese, and so we can no longer speak about Chinese culture. And somehow we become Christians. We are no longer Filipino, and so we cannot speak about the Filipino culture. My friends, let me tell you this. You have just as much right to speak about the culture of which you are a part because that is who you are. And so as a Christian, you have every right to say, no, I am a Christian and I am Chinese and this is the way I live my life. It does not detract from my ethnicity. Does that make sense? I am a young person. I am a youth. And I am a Christian. And this is the way I live my life And therefore, this is my Christ-likeness in this youth-driven culture. And I am one of you. So you too can live this life. Do not cede the territory of your culture to the world simply because you are a Christian. You are a citizen of this world. You are a citizen of this country. You have the very right to engage the very culture of which you are a part and begin to transform it. And so if you are in a circle of friends, if you are in your spheres of influence, then you have just as much right to tell them what is right and what is wrong. Just as much as they have the option of telling you what is right and what is wrong for the group. You and I, my friends, have the responsibility to engage the culture even if they do not agree with us, with the sole aim of transforming it through Jesus Christ. And there lies our second principle. Maybe you're taking notes number two. Our responsibility to culture. Our responsibility to culture is to engage to transform. That's our responsibility. To engage culture to transform it. My friends, I know how hard it is to change culture. As we've defined earlier, it is the set of beliefs for an entire group of people. And it carries such strong undergirding that oftentimes we don't even think about it. But if we were to engage it actively, then we can begin to transform it. That is our responsibility. Let me illustrate this. Every one of you, when you took driver's education or learned to drive, you were taught what the colors of the light meant. And for the rest of the world, you understand that green means go, and red means stop, and yellow means slow down because the light is about to turn red. But we've made fun of this in the Philippines. In the Philippines, green means go, yellow means go faster, and red means slow down, but if there's no one crossing, then you can go. Right? That is our culture. We've accepted it. We laugh about it. We joke about it. We want to change it. But we ourselves do it. I see it every day at the corner of Sergeant Rivera and Jay Luna coming into GVA. We see it all the time. So how do we transform the culture? Well, if it's red, you stop. It starts with you. Even if it's in the middle of the night, you stop. Even if there's no cars, you stop. 
Even if there's a long line honking their horns for you to go, you stop. That's how you begin to engage and transform the culture. He said, come on, pastor. Talking about stoplights here. If we can't do these simple things, how can we apply this principle to larger things like changing and transforming a culture of corruption? We complain about a culture of corruption in our country. But for many businessmen and many people, we talk about it. But we accept the culture and say, well, I guess I too must be corrupt to live in this culture. Unless one takes the stand to begin to engage it and transform it, then nothing happens. But that is your responsibility and that is my responsibility. To engage and to transform with Jesus Christ. There's a saying from Jim Osterhaus, a good friend of mine. Culture always eats strategy for breakfast. It's a business concept applied to corporations, but it can apply to homes. It can apply to churches. Culture always eats strategy for breakfast. And what does that mean? That means you can have the greatest program, the greatest strategy, the greatest rules you've set up, the greatest public policy in government. But unless you change the culture, nothing moves, nothing changes. The growth of our church is not because we added a new program. We didn't take something from America and plop it here and then our church began to grow. I often joke to many that the order of service the culture of our church is the same 45 years ago in terms of service as it is today. So what changed? What changed was the culture of the church. If you do not engage with an idea towards transformation, then you will find that culture always eats strategy and programs for breakfast. And it begins with you and me in a community of believers as we begin to transform the culture for Christ. Look again at verse 18 with me. Some said, Oh, Paul, what does this babbler want to say? Idle babbler in the Greek is the idea of one who makes his living by picking up scraps this is a garbage collector. This isn't anyone. Why do we have to listen to him? And here's what I want you to understand, my friends. If you're going to engage the culture in order to transform it for Jesus Christ, then understand that not everyone is going to like you. Expect that. Not everyone is going to like you. And therein lies our third principle, number three. Our expectation when engaging the culture. Our expectation when engaging the culture is we are to expect rejection. Our expectation of engaging the culture, rejection. And so you and I must come to a point in our lives, if we want to engage the culture, we must ask ourselves the question, am I okay with rejection? Because if you're not okay with rejection, 
then you're going to be finding it very difficult to stand up to a sinful lifestyle that is so prevalent in our culture, which everyone is doing. If you do not accept rejection and cannot endure it, then you will find it very difficult to walk out of a movie or a play or a concert that you're watching which you realize is inappropriate and incongruent with the Christian faith, especially if you are amongst friends. If you are not ready for rejection, then you will find it very difficult to stand up with boldness and tell your friends or your family that you shouldn't be doing this or you shouldn't be here, even if they call you names. Or they say, oh, you're just a killjoy. And you will find it very difficult if you cannot accept rejection to be the only one that removes yourself out of that sinful place when no one else is wanting to follow you. Our expectation when engaging the culture is rejection. And I know that's so hard because everyone wants to be liked. I like to be liked. Who doesn't? And so sometimes, I'll be honest with you, there are things that I really wrestle with. Should I say it? Should I not? What if I offend them? What if they won't like me anymore? And that's the truth. We all struggle with that because we all like to be liked. But then I have had to be convicted many a times that when I engage the culture, then I would experience rejection. There will be people who do not like me for what I say and what I do. But to encourage you, I tell you the story of the great preacher, G. Campbell Morgan. He was one of 150 young men who was preparing to enter into the Wesleyan ministry or the Methodist church in 1888. After two weeks of examination and practice preaching, G. Campbell Morgan's name appeared among the 105 rejected that year for ministry. Jill Morgan, his daughter-in-law, wrote in her father-in-law's biography, A Man of the Word, that Morgan was so discouraged that he telegraphed to his father simply one word, rejected. And then he sat down to write in his diary, it is a very dark day, everything seems very dark. Quickly, the next morning came the reply through telegram of his father, rejected on earth, Accepted in heaven, Dad. Brothers and sisters, ultimately there is no rejection for those accepted by Christ. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. And that encourages me to say what needs to be said, even if it offends because our lives are not to cultivate the most friends. He with the most friends at the end of this life does not win. And yet many of us live life playing that game. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. We've already been accepted by Jesus Christ. He died for us. 
so that we may have salvation. If that doesn't speak of acceptance, I don't know what does. And so we don't need to impress the world. We only are here to impress the audience of one. Verse 19 to verse 21. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They brought Paul to the Areopagus. In Greek, Eris' rock. It's the place in Greek mythology where the god Eris was supposedly had been tried for the murder of Poseidon's son. Uh, you may know it more commonly as Mars Hill. This is the Romanized name for the Areopagus. Uh, the Romans simply took all the Greek gods and renamed them, and so Eris became Mars. And so Paul was taken to Mars Hill. But this was, was a place where they often judged, especially in the time of the Greeks. But in the Roman times, this was the gathering for all the philosophers to exchange thoughts and, and to judge one another whether it was of value. Paul had engaged the culture so well perhaps without being judgmental or with an understanding as he spoke to them, that they desired to know more about this Christianity. What a great lesson to us about how we engage culture. We are not to be obnoxious. We are not to be elitist. We are not to do so in anger. But we do so with sincerity and with grace and with love in the gentleness of the Spirit. And that's why Paul was invited to share more about this Christianity. And that he did. Look at verse 22 and 23. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Look how he commends them. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. Paul's speech to them showed that he took the time to understand their culture. He did not only know it from a peripheral level, he genuinely understood their culture. He told them, wow, you guys have so many idols. And we know the Greeks, they love their gods. And you know, he even took the time to examine it so that he knew that there was an altar that was given to the unknown God. You see, the Greeks love their gods. And they never wanted to offend any of their lowercase gods. And so, just in case they missed one, they had a temple, an altar built for the unknown God. Kind of the catch-all. Paul, with great wisdom, by understanding the culture, said to the Athenians, you have an altar to the unknown God. Well, you know what? I know the name of this unknown God. I know who this is. Let me tell you who it is. Can you imagine how it would have perked their ears up 
to want to hear about this unknown God. And in verses 24 to verses 31, Paul will deliver a beautiful speech, an apologetic speech, to convince them of the one true God. But before that, from the actions of Paul, we draw out our fourth principle. Number four, if you're taking notes. Our preparation when engaging culture. Our preparation when engaging culture is to understand the culture. There are a lot of Christians who on the extreme say, well, you know what? I don't want to be a part of this world, this evil, sinful world. And so they pull back so much, they don't understand the contemporary culture. They only hang out with Christians. And you know what? They shield themselves so much so that they are no longer relevant to engaging a contemporary culture for Christ. We must understand the culture. We must take the time to understand it. I remember a funny story. I think I've shared before, but it fits so well. It's a story of my dad when he first went to the U.S. in the mid-60s to study. Uh, He had traveled long and hard and uh, arrived in Texas. And his host family uh, asked him if he was hungry and wanted dinner My father was famished. It was in the evening. But in true Asian-ness, he said no. He was expecting his American host to ask again. But when my father said no, they just put everything back in the refrigerator. My father went to bed very hungry that night, but learned a very important lesson. In Asia, you ask three times, and you're supposed to refuse two. In America, you only get asked once, and that's it. Actually, thinking about it, the American way is a bit more biblical. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Matthew 5, 37. We'll talk more about our Asian Chinese culture next week. But unless you understand the culture of which you are engaging then you will not be effective in transforming it for Jesus Christ. Be careful. I'm not telling you to sin to understand the culture, but to understand it so that you can engage it. I wish we had time to exposit Paul's great arguments in verses 24 to 31, but we'll be here until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But I'll give you a sampling in verses 24 and 25. But you, please, go back and read it. Verse 24 and 25. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with man's hand as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Paul is a wonderful lawyer. He is so logical in his argument He says, this unknown God, which you've built an altar, perhaps a covering over, he is the creator of the world, the universe. How can you contain the God of the universe in a building, in a temple? He doesn't need that. Also, the God of the universe, who supplies us all of our needs, does not need offerings 
back to him, which is prevalent in the Greek culture of Athens. Why would the God who supplies all of our needs, gives us life and breath, all things, need useless offerings? You see, Paul was engaging the culture, but you can understand how well he knew the Bible, how well he knew theology. That he could say, I know what you believe, but here is another way to live. Here's another way to believe. And he uses it logically. From these eight verses, it is very apparent that Paul knows the Bible. He knows theology. He knew the points of agreement and the points of disagreement between the Christian culture and the Athenian culture. And he spoke to it clearly with passion and with conviction. And therein lies our fifth principle, if you're taking notes, number five. The second aspect of preparation when engaging culture is biblical knowledge. Biblical knowledge. You need to know the Bible. At the end of the day, you need to know what the Bible says to be able to effectively engage the culture. You need to know what you believe. You need to know why you believe what you believe. You see, the world has a thousand and one reasons why they do what they do. So what are your foundational truths? What are the pillars of your faith? What are the convictions that will not move? Because if you don't have a solid biblical foundational pillar, when the world culture comes on you, you will wilt and you will fall. We can't speak to all aspects of culture, but we can certainly filter it through a biblical grid to see if it is congruent with what the Bible says. You know, I don't understand half of the youth-driven culture today. I feel like I'm a young pastor, but I have no idea what the 21st century young people are fascinated with. I don't understand I don't understand their fascination with the supernatural and the dark arts and the occult. I don't get why a few years ago, the hottest book and movie was Twilight. It boggles the mind, my mind, that young girls and some young men and some older women and some older men would be so fascinated with a fictional girl choosing love between a werewolf and a vampire. When I grew up, werewolves and vampires were to be avoided at all cost. And now the two options available in a present age story is a werewolf and a vampire. I don't understand that. And I don't need to understand it fully. But I can take that story and, and filter it through a biblical grid. And so I can begin to address the issue about the rise of fascination in the younger generation in the world of the mystical and the occult. And we're going to address this topic in subsequent weeks. You see, the Bible is our standard bearer because it does not change. It gives us timeless truths for a transient time such as this. God does not change. His impeccability is one of His characteristics. It simply means He does not change. That means what God has written in the Bible does not change. 
In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we're told Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, the same today, and the same forever. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God Himself. God does not change. And therefore, what God speaks about in the Scriptures does not change based on cultural whims. Some may say, well, that was for then. What about for now? And we can come back and say, well, you know what? This is how God desires it for all ages. Can you defend your faith? Do you know your faith well enough to defend it? It's my prayer that from our congregation, God will raise all of you up to be great apologists, defenders of the Christian faith, and we're on the right track. I see you there marking up your Bibles, taking notes, actively engaging your mind with what the Bible says. I'm encouraged Wednesday evening, we have more than 75 people gathering on a weekday, some traveling more than two hours just to learn more about the Bible. What about the rest of you? If you can spend three hours over a meal, four hours over a movie... You can certainly come a little bit earlier on a Sunday or stay a little bit later on a Sunday. Come on a Friday or a Wednesday or every other day of the week that our church has something for you to grow in the Lord with. The church is a responsibility. And our responsibility is to provide the vehicle and the opportunity for you to grow in your faith. But the responsibility for you to know the Bible is up to you. We need defenders to advance the cause of Christ or we will fall to this culture. Now you say, oh, come on, pastor. Don't be so hard. That's your job. My friends, that's all of our jobs. Because one day it will hit home into your family life. And when your child grows up, your child may ask you, Dad, why can't I have sex before marriage? How will you answer that? But what if one day your child comes up to you and says, I think I'm homosexual. I have the same sex attraction. But what would you do? How would you react? This is the culture of which we are a part. Don't think it will not happen in your families. Or your children, grandchildren, come up to you and say, hey, what we're doing in business is not right. Aren't you a Christian? How would you handle that? Because that's when culture hits home. And so this is not an issue simply for me. This is an issue for all of us because we live in this culture. And unless we set the foundational truth of what is the Christian culture filtered through a biblical grid, that we will know not how to handle these things. Praise the Lord that He grants us the freedom and the filter by which we can live this life to radically transform this culture for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 32. To 34 as we close. The responses of what happens when we 
engaged culture, there are three. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We have heard you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Three reactions from his speech on Mars Hill. Verse 32, some began to sneer. They, they, they mocked him. They expressed contempt. And we talked about this. Do not be surprised when God's message is rejected. Some of you will listen to this series and you will be very offended. Some of you, I know, will stop coming to church. But you are not rejecting me. You will be rejecting the Word of God. And that's why I believe Paul spoke with such boldness. Because he understood that in rejection, he let the water roll off his back. They were not rejecting him. They were rejecting the Word of God. There will be those who sneer and mock and hold God's Word in contempt. I expect that. Others will say, we will hear you again. You know what? This, this is fascinating. Let me explore this a bit more. Perhaps that may happen in this series as you dive down deeper into the issues that we will address. Understand that when you engage culture, be ready to walk with them in the journey of discovery to explain your faith. And if you don't have a faith to explain, and that speaks of your spiritual depth. But there will be many when you begin to engage them in culture. Talking to them about the transforming work of Jesus Christ. They will open themselves up for further questions. Are you ready? And then the wonderful thing, finally, some men joined him and believed. The wonderful thing is that when we engage culture with the eye towards transformation, then many times the message falls on prepared hearts. It will result in a transformed life because now you would have brought them another way to live their life and they wake up to the reality of how they're living theirs. That's my hope that as we begin to engage the culture with an eye towards transformation in Jesus Christ, it will change in the lives of many how they live their life to that of the world, from that of the world to that of Christ. That is why we engage the culture. To wake them up to another way that life can be lived. And unless we are able to wake them up, we simply allow the world culture to carry on. All we have to do to allow sin to run rampant is to do nothing. We can all go home today, do nothing, and by doing so, we have lost. Can't stand in the middle. There's no middle ground. By doing nothing, we allow sin to prevail because the culture of this world carries on. It will affect us, it will affect our children. It will affect our family. My friends, this is a war. 
It is a war for the mind and the hearts of the young and old. The wonderful thing is we have the victory. We already have the victory in Jesus Christ. So now my challenge to you is to go forth and claim that victory as we engage the culture to transform it for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, war has come. It has come many centuries ago when sin entered the world. Praise the Lord that the war was won when Jesus Christ died on the cross and his shed blood made propitiation for our sin. But the battle still rages, and unfortunately, many of us are on the sidelines. With the clear victory that we have, I pray that each person here this morning would run forth on the battlefield of this cultural war for the hearts and the minds of the young and old, our own minds, and that of our own children and our families, and begin to claim the victory. I pray for wisdom. I pray for discernment. I pray for grace and of mercy and of thoughtfulness undergirded by love that we can go forth, engage this culture, transforming it for Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.